Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. On October 27, 1983, state troopers in Anchorage, Alaska brought a man in for questioning relating to a kidnapping and sexual assault committed earlier that year. As he was being interviewed, the police were executing a search warrant at his home. The warrant had been granted after FBI profilers, including John Douglas, had signed an affidavit detailing what they thought would be found inside the property. Robert Hansen had been a suspect in multiple investigations, and once the troopers uncovered a collection of incriminating items, they knew they had their man. Welcome to episode 29 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. By September 1983, at least eight women had disappeared in south-central Alaska. Most were in their twenties with light-coloured hair, had few connections to the area, and worked as exotic dancers. Spanning a decade, numerous women had been going missing in that part of Alaska. Tragically, some were discovered buried in shallow graves. However, others had simply vanished without a trace, and they were still listed as missing. On July 17, 1980, electrical workers repairing some power lines unearthed a female's remains in a wooded area one mile south of Eklutna Lake Road. The victim's body was damaged by animal predation, but it was believed she had been stabbed to death. To this day, she has still not been identified. She is known only by a name given to her during the investigation. Eklutna Rani. Just days before the discovery of Annie, a passerby stumbled upon another body dumped along the highway in the area of Seward. 
The woman had been buried in a shallow grave near a gravel pit, and like Eklutnarani, her remains had been ravaged by opportunistic animals in the area. It was apparent she had met her end by foul play. Two gunshot wounds had perforated her body. It was later determined the bullets were fired from a 22 caliber weapon. For the time being, the victim's identity remained unknown, but she would later be identified as Joanna Messina, who had disappeared along with her pet dog two months prior. Women continued to vanish, including Malai Larson in June 1981, but the investigations to find those missing women were minimal. On September 12th, 1982, Two police officers out hunting for moose along the Kinnick River came across something on the banks that caught their eye. Approaching the object, the officers could see pieces of clothing, and as they got closer, it was clear they had found a body. The female remains were in an advanced state of decomposition. However, the officers could tell that the victim was young with blonde hair. She had suffered a gunshot wound to her chest. The bullet had perforated her heart, which had killed her almost instantly. A bandage or a strip of fabric was wrapped around the woman's face covering her eyes. In the surrounding soil, investigators found a shell casing from a .223 caliber firearm. After comparing the description of the victim with missing person reports from the area, the woman was identified as 23-year-old Sherry Morrow. Sherry had been reported missing in November of the previous year. She had been working in Anchorage for some time. When she disappeared, Sherry had a job as a dancer at a club called The Wild Sherry. On November 17, 1981, she had arranged a date with a man she met at the club. He told her he was a photographer. The man said he would be willing to pay if she allowed him to take photographs of her. On that November afternoon, Sherry walked with her roommate towards the cafe where she had planned to meet the mystery man. After they parted ways, Sherry Morrow was never seen alive again. Ten months later, the clothes Sherry had been wearing when she disappeared were found with her remains in a shallow grave along the sandbank of the Kinnick River. At the time, the Anchorage police did not believe that they had a serial killer in their midst. As teams of officers searched the banks of the river, Lieutenant John Shover told the Sitka Daily News, There's nothing now to indicate that the disappearances are anything other than a coincidence. Anchorage Police Investigator Maxine Farrell had been looking into the cases of the missing women and she too spoke with the press. Farrell said, We don't believe that we have a mass murderer out there, some psycho knocking off girls but we have to cover every possibility. In June 1983, 
the Anchorage police received a report that a young woman had been found barefoot and handcuffed running along the highway. A passerby had dropped her off at a hotel, and when the police arrived they found a girl in her late teens, Cindy Paulson, still shackled and distraught. She told the investigators that she had been to Fourth and Denali when a green Buick pulled up into the car park and the driver beckoned her over. He offered her $200 for oral sex, and Cindy agreed. After she got into the passenger seat, the man pulled out a pistol and put it to her head. As he handcuffed her, he warned Cindy not to make a sound or try to escape. If the feeling of the barrel against her head was not enough to subdue her, the man made it clear that he would shoot Cindy if she did not do precisely what he said. They drove to a property on Old Harbour Avenue off Muldoon Road. Cindy was forced to enter the house and walk down the stairs into a converted basement. The room was decorated with hunting trophies. The heads of wild animals were mounted on the wall and on the floor in front of an orange sofa was a large bearskin rug. A world record certificate was hung on the wall, a testament to the hunter's skill. On the rug, the man forced himself upon Cindy. He made sure she could not fight back. Not only did he handcuff Cindy's hands, but also wrapped a chain around her neck and secured it to a post. After hours of being sexually assaulted, the young victim was told she was going to be taken to the man's cabin for the weekend. He said he had a plane at Merrill Airfield and they could fly out to the cabin and he would bring Cindy back afterwards. Once they arrived at the airfield in the early hours of June 13th, the man warned Cindy not to move as he loaded up the plane. For hours, Cindy had been waiting for a chance to escape, and once her captor was away from the car, she seized the opportunity. Cindy opened the door and ran as fast as she could. Once the man realised what was happening, he gave chase with the pistol still in his hand. Luckily, someone was driving past at the time, and Cindy managed to flag them down telling the passerby that someone was trying to kill her. Based on Cindy Paulson's statement, the Anchorage police had a description of the suspect, an address, the make of his car and details of his plane. Cindy was taken to the hospital for an internal examination which the authorities hoped would provide more evidence. When officers went to the airfield to check who the plane was registered to, they were given the name Robert Hansen, a local man who lived on Old Harbour Avenue. A security guard had seen a green Buick driving away less than an hour earlier and noted the licence plate. Within hours of Cindy Paulson reporting what had happened, Officers went to Hansen's home to question him about the incident. At the station, Robert Hansen denied knowing anything about it. 
He said he had not even picked up any sex workers, at least in the last few nights. Hansen had multiple alibis too. He claimed that he had been having dinner with his friend John Summerall. After leaving before midnight, Hansen supposedly went to the home of another friend, John Henning. The pair were in each other's company until just before 6am. The men corroborated Hansen's story, but detectives were still unsure. Hansen gave them permission to search his car, his home and plane, and he even accompanied them. In the car, officers found a jacket and cap, just as Cindy Paulson had described. They also noticed bandages and ammunition belonging to a .223 calibre firearm. Inside the basement, everything was exactly how Cindy had recalled. However, nothing proved that she had been held there against her will. Fearing her account would not be believed, Cindy Paulson left Anchorage, and investigators dropped the case. In early September 1983, a few months after Cindy Paulson's escape, two teenagers walking along the banks of the Kinnick River two miles from the Glen Highway Bridge came across a woman's body. She was buried in a shallow grave that had been disturbed by animals. A preliminary examination yielded few clues to the woman's identity or how long she had been dead. However, the medical examiner was able to tell that the victim had been shot in the chest and a bullet casing was found in the surrounding soil. The body had been discovered within a few miles of the location where Sherry Morrow's remains were found a year earlier. After comparing the dental records from missing women to the victim, she was subsequently identified as 30-year-old Paula Goulding. At that time, there were at least 10 women who had disappeared in similar circumstances. Roxanne Easland, Lisa Futrell, Andrea Altery, Sue Luna, Teresa Watson, Dylan Frey, Angela Fedden, Tamira Pedersen, Megan Emmerich, and Malai Larson. Several had mentioned meeting someone for a date, but never returned. Like many of the missing women, Paula Goulding made a living dancing in an anchorage club. She had also been killed with a similar weapon and her body was disposed of in the same area. Lieutenant Pack Hasnick told the Daily Sitka Sentinel that he did not think it was a coincidence. Within a week, a team of more than 60 officers scoured the sandbars along the river, armed with metal detectors and assisted by search dogs. The search only unearthed a white bracelet, but still the police were concerned that the area hid much worse. Maxine Farrell, the Anchorage investigator who had been looking into the cases of missing women since 1980, told the press that she believed one man was responsible for what police feared could be as many as six murders. Farrell said, He's still here. The publicity might have pushed him under a little, 
but he's here. They're going off with somebody they trust. I believe he's in his late 30s, early 40s, probably clean cut and soft-spoken to where the girls feel really safe with him. He may be affluent. If not, he pretends to be. These girls aren't stupid. He's got to be able to show he can pay. I don't think they just ran away. These girls are leaving behind things they would not normally leave. State troopers were called in to assist in the investigation as experts were comparing dental records for the missing women to the unidentified victims that had been found since 1980. Sergeant Lyle Haugsven told the press, The graves were so similar, shallow. No great effort was made to bury them, but there may not have been time. Just to know the area where he took the girls. Yeah, it's local. Sergeant Haugsven described how the authorities were looking at other crimes that may not appear to be linked. And if a mass killer was responsible, the officer believed that the killer felt as though they were on a mission. Sergeant Haugsven said, Maybe he's got a fetish he's got to do, but they are coming more frequently. The FBI were asked to assist in the case. Criminal profilers John Douglas and Jim Horn went to Anchorage to construct a profile of the man they believed was responsible. Addressing reporter State Trooper Glenn Floth, who was in charge of the investigation, remarked, I started to describe the suspect and the FBI agent interrupted me. He said, I don't want to know about him. Just describe the crimes, the crime scenes, the background of the victims and so forth. Then he told me the approximate age of the individual we might be looking for. Said that he possibly might stutter. Several thrill killers have said he probably was an upstanding citizen, a respected member of the community a person who had been rejected as a youth and one who had above-average intelligence. He also said the individual might have been involved in sexually related crimes such as arson, shoplifting and the like. It all fit in. Investigators believed that the suspect was someone with self-esteem issues stemming from adolescence, likely due to acne or a speech impediment. The killer was believed to be someone who knew the area well, and someone who was an experienced hunter. When the FBI profile was compared to Robert Hansen's background, it was almost identical. However, this was not enough to charge him with murder. Robert Christian Hansen was born in Iowa in February 1939. Hansen's father had emigrated to the US from Denmark. The family moved between Iowa and California before settling in Pocahontas during the late 1940s. Christian Hansen operated a bakery below the family's apartment on the city's main street. From a young age, his son was enlisted to help prepare baked goods during the early hours of the morning before school. Aside from his responsibilities at home, something else stopped Robert Hansen from socialising and making friends throughout his time in Pocahontas High School. 
Hansen suffered from terrible acne and had a prominent stammer that made him highly self-conscious. Instead of going out with his peers, he kept to himself and took up hunting. After graduating high school in 1957, he joined the military. Hansen's basic training was undertaken in New Jersey. It was here that he was introduced to sex workers, which led to Hansen losing his virginity. After serving in the army, he returned to Iowa, back to the small city of Pocahontas he knew all too well. He had little free time and very few friends. Things in Hansen's life were not always mundane, however. On December 7, 1960, he came to the attention of the police. A fire broke out at the school bus barn, and Hansen was one of the first volunteer firefighters at the scene. Seven buses had been parked in the barn when it went up in flames. Firefighters managed to get four of the buses out of the building. Two were consumed by the blaze and a third was destroyed when the gas tank exploded, injuring a first responder inside the vehicle. The Pocahontas Police Department struggled to link the arson to anyone until the spring of 1961, when a teenage boy came forward to confess that he had been there when the fire broke out. He said that it had been Robert Hansen's idea. Hansen pleaded guilty to setting the fire and received a three-year sentence to be served in a reformatory in Anamosa. Robert Hansen had married a local woman shortly before he was convicted. They divorced not long after he was sent to prison. His parents left Pocahontas and began managing a holiday resort in Minnesota's Chippewa National Forest. It was here that Hansen met his future wife, Darla. The newlywed couple moved around, and Hansen received some misdemeanor convictions for theft in the years after his marriage in 1963. The husband and wife chose to settle in Anchorage, Alaska during 1967. They eventually warmed to the city, blending in and becoming respected members of the community. Darla was a practicing Lutheran and working towards a teaching qualification. Her husband had plenty of opportunities to utilize his hunting skills in the remote wilderness surrounding Anchorage, though there was a clause when participating in his favorite hobby. Hansen had to hunt without a firearm as he was a convicted felon. Robert Hansen and his wife had two children, a girl and a boy. For several years, Hansen steered clear of the law, but all that changed in 1971, when he found himself in trouble with the police yet again for a new and disturbing reason. During November and December of that year, Hansen attempted to abduct, assault and rape three women. In mid-December, he had abducted a woman at gunpoint and sexually assaulted her for several hours before she was finally released. 
The room where Hansen had assaulted the woman was rented under his own name. He was arrested just over a week later. What's more, a month prior, Hansen had been taken into custody for the attempted abduction of another woman in Anchorage, before being released on bond on the condition that he attend psychiatric counselling. In the time between the kidnapping and Hansen's arrest, a young woman was found dead in a ravine. Celia Van Zanten was an 18-year-old freshman at Anchorage Community College when she was reported missing. Three days later, her body was found near the Seward Highway. It was believed that she had been alive when she was thrown 40 to 60 feet into the ravine. She had been bound and beaten, but it was concluded she died of exposure. Robert Hansen was charged with kidnapping, rape and assault with a deadly weapon. However, there was nothing to link him to Celia's murder. His bond was set at $100,000. In the spring of 1972, the charges for the December kidnapping and rape were dropped and Hansen pleaded guilty to assault with a dangerous weapon. He received a five-year sentence. A court-ordered psychiatric report completed by Dr. J. Ray Langdon on February 28, 1972, read that Hansen was suffering from a disassociative mental illness. It was concluded that his criminal behaviour had been a result of his condition. Regardless, Hansen spent around a year in prison before being moved to a halfway house. After three years of parole, he had served his time. During this period, women began to disappear. On November 3, 1976, Hansen was arrested again, this time for larceny. He took a chainsaw from a department store in Anchorage. The security guard apprehended the thief in the parking lot. Speaking about the offence, Hansen said at the time, I looked at them and remembered about five weeks previous, my father and I had been cutting wood for our fireplace and his remarking three or four times how much he would like to have one. My folks live in Oregon and were visiting us for four weeks to use when he and my mother go camping along the coast. I told my father that he would be more than welcome to take mine, but he refused. I thought of this and all the presents my parents had given me through the years and how wonderful it would be if I could give him a saw for Christmas. I also thought, of course, about that my wife and I had just bought this summer a new home and put everything we have saved for more than nine years into. I guess many, many thoughts went through my mind as I looked at the saws. I wanted almost more than anything to please my father and could just imagine the expression on his face on Christmas Day if I could give him that saw. I walked around the store some more and out the front door. Outside, a native man had just had a heart attack. The police, fire department and paramedics were there to give him treatment. My father is 69 and has had one heart attack and is very overweight. 
Again, I thought of the chainsaw and how pleased he would be to receive it at Christmas. I walked back into the store, again to the source. I thought there was a young man watching me, but then he seemed to disappear. On the one box that I picked up, there was a sales receipt. I guess this is when I first really seriously thought about taking the saw. It seemed like nobody would know if I paid for the saw or not if they saw a sales receipt on the box. I took the saw and walked out of the door when I was apprehended and arrested. I know what I did was wrong, and I am very sorry for doing so. Robert Hansen told a psychiatrist that he had a compulsion to steal things and was then diagnosed with a bipolar affective disorder. As a third-time offender being charged with his third felony, the state asked that he be given the maximum sentence of seven years. The judge sentenced Hansen to five years in prison and ruled that he would be eligible for parole at the earliest opportunity. At the time of the offence, Hansen and Darla had just bought the house on Old Harbour Avenue, where he would later be arrested for crimes far worse than stealing a chainsaw. Hansen was released in the fall of 1978, and three years later it appeared as though he had turned over a new leaf. He now owned his own bakery in Anchorage, but disaster apparently struck in January 1981, when Hansen claimed that someone broke into his home and stole his bearskin rug, furs, the head of a sheep he got in a world record kill, and some walrus tusks. He received over $10,000 in compensation for the claim. After the FBI had been enlisted to assist in the investigation, the agents wrote an affidavit to support a request for search warrants. The warrants were granted on October 26, 1983. The next day, Hansen was brought to the station while officers began searching his home on Old Harbour Avenue. Five guns were found on the property, including a 223 caliber Ruger Mini-14 and a 357 Magnum pistol, just like the one Cindy Paulson had described months earlier. Officers also uncovered an aviation map showing portions of south-central Alaska along the Kinnick River that had numerous X marks in different locations. Hidden in the attic, the investigators discovered a bag of jewellery, along with business and ID cards from some of the missing women. As officers were conducting the search, the wife of one of the men who had provided Hansen with an alibi for the night of Cindy Paulson's kidnap and rape pulled over to ask what was going on. John Henning's partner told the police that her husband had lied for Hansen and that they needed to speak with him. Henning told the police that Hansen had called him early that morning explaining that he had taken a sex worker to his home while his wife and kids were away in Europe for the summer. She had supposedly begun to demand more money than the price they had agreed. Hansen told his friend that he refused to give her the cash, 
and that the woman had made a false rape allegation against him. Cindy Paulson's case had been dropped because the police had believed the word of two men previously considered upstanding members of society over the claims of a terrified teenage sex worker. While the searches were concluding at Hansen's property, he was arrested. The case was sent to a grand jury the following week. State Trooper Floth told reporters, Our approach to him was casual and relaxed, but business-like and professional. We started our narration with his arrest and conviction for arson at Pocahontas, went through the kidnapping in 1972, the theft in 1976, the rape kidnapping in 1979, and then on to the murders. We encouraged him to discuss elements of the crimes, to let him know we knew a pattern had developed. When he felt confronted, when we started talking about the murders, then he said he wanted an attorney. We arrested him and charged him. Robert Hansen was indicted on charges of kidnap, rape, five counts of first-degree misconduct for weapon possession, along with three counts of theft for the possession of the allegedly stolen furs and hunting trophies found in his home. Hansen was held at the Cook Inlet Jail on a bond of $500,000 while the evidence seized at his home was analysed. The marks on the aviation map correlated with at least four burial sites, but there were 21 other marks that the police suspected indicated other graves. The winter weather posed a barrier to any search operations, and addressing the press, Assistant District Attorney Frank Rothschild said, Investigators must wait until the spring thaw to complete their work. Robert Hansen's defence attorney Fred Dewey requested that the kidnap-rape trial for the crimes committed against Cindy Paulson in the summer of 1983 be postponed. The state argued against the submission, knowing that there was significant evidence linking Hansen to a number of homicides. As the evidence was mounting, Robert Hansen agreed to speak with the investigators from both state and Anchorage authorities. Over two days in mid-February 1984, Hansen confessed to murdering 17 women and raping at least 30 others during a 10-year period between 1973 and the time of his arrest in 1983. State Trooper Glenn Floth and Sergeant Lyle Haugsvan sat with the District Attorney Victor Crum and Assistant District Attorney Rothschild, listening as Hansen spoke. He was asked about the incident with Cindy Paulson. Hansen admitted that he had planned to use his plane and fly Cindy out to an area along the Kanik River, but she had escaped. Hansen was asked why he had chosen that area and why some women did not come back. He replied, Well, once out there, there was no need for any restraints or really anything else, any firearms or anything. They would take off and want to leave, you know. Twice I made the mistake of, 
They got their hands on firearms that I had with me, and I came pretty damn close to getting shot. Hanson explained to investigators that as long as the women went along with his demands, he would bring them home. When he was asked what would happen if they did not, he replied, They stayed. Hanson started speaking about the murders, beginning with the unidentified woman found near the power lines in Eklutna. She was known only as Eklutna Annie. Anson said he could not remember if the woman was a dancer or a sex worker. Annie had started running from him and he caught up with her. Quote, We stopped and I grabbed her hair or whatever, and she had a big knife in her purse. I tripped her and she started screaming at me, you know, Don't kill me, don't kill me. I said I'm not going to kill you, and she kept yelling, No, no, you're going to kill me, and so forth and then things just got all out of hand. She was lying face down, and I just stuck her. Anson tried to rationalise his actions by explaining his reasons for killing women. He said he was trying to convince himself that he was not buying sex. It was being given to him, because he was good enough. Anson spoke about his time in high school, saying, I was... I guess what you might call very frustrated, upset all the time. I would see my friends and so forth, going out on dates and so forth, and I had a tremendous desire to do the same thing. From the scars and so forth on my face, you can probably see, I could see why girls wouldn't want to get close to me. And when I'm nervous and upset like this here, I'll try to demonstrate if I can think about exactly what I'm going to say and if I talk slow, I can keep myself from stuttering. But at the time during my high school days, I could not control my speech at all. I was always so embarrassed and upset with it from people making fun of me that I hate the word school. I guess this is why I burned down the bus barn way back in Iowa. I just hated the place with a divine passion. Hanson went on to say that when he was younger, He was bullied and ridiculed by girls. He denied hating women, but admitted that he classed sex workers as lower than himself. However, he desperately wanted them to like him. Hanson claimed that he had brought several women out to his cabin who were allowed to return safely. Still, once things went wrong in his estimation, then the women became worthless in his eyes and he did not just kill them, he hunted them. Hansen drove or flew his victims to an area between the Glen Highway Bridge and the Connick River, a place so remote that he knew he would not be disturbed. A man dressed for hunting with a rifle in his hand would not be an unlikely sight in that part of Alaska. Many hunters shoot moose or other wildlife out in the Matsu Valley, along the 25-mile river that flowed from the glacier to the Cook Inlet. In the summertime, the area can receive sunlight for up to 19 hours a day, compared to just five in the winter. The temperature ranges between 46 and 65 degrees Fahrenheit during the summer months, 
and falls to around 20 degrees in the winter. For reference, the freezing point is around 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Between pine trees and the river, Hansen pursued his terrified victims. It's difficult to cross the terrain in appropriate footwear. With bare feet, it's almost impossible. Speaking about kidnapping the women, Hansen said, I tried to act as tough as I could to get them as scared as possible. Even before I started talking, I reached over and more or less get my hand in the girl's hair and hold their head back and put a gun in their face to get them to feel helpless. Hansen was asked if he would abduct women and fly them out in the winter. He replied, I could, but winter wasn't the time to do it. Things were dormant in the wintertime. This was a summertime project. This is something I got into for my own ego. Hansen had even arranged for his wife and children to spend the summer in Europe so he was free to do whatever he wanted. He once again spoke about his self-esteem issues and how he felt as though he was cheated out of his youth. Hansen said he thought it was his turn to have fun. Quote, If you look real close at me, you'll see that I used to have a tremendous amount of pimples on my face. I guess it's because I grew up in a bakery. I'm addicted to sweets. All through high school, it embarrassed me to be around people. I looked like a freak, and I sounded like one. I never had many girls that were interested in me. Despite one woman being interested enough to marry him and have children with him, Hansen posted notices in the single section of local papers to try and find a close relationship with someone. He claimed to have succeeded but there was no sexual aspect to any of the encounters. Hansen said there were no problems in his marriage at all, but he wanted oral sex, and he did not feel that it was respectful to ask his wife to perform it. While Robert Hansen differentiated between the women who had replied to his singles ads and the women he claimed propositioned him, he said that he had, quote, never met a lady who wasn't just one hell of a nice person. Describing Hansen, District Attorney Crum later said, when a prostitute came onto him, she became inferior in his eyes and a risk to others, and he attacked them. He told us he never intended to kill. It just got out of hand at least 17 times. Robert Hansen abducted and killed the Klutner Annie, Joanna Messina, and another woman, Lisa Futrell, in 1980. Joanna was not a dancer in Anchorage. She had just been let go from her job at a cannery in Seward when she met Hansen in May 1980. He confessed that he had taken her out to dinner before going back to his camper. Hansen said that she then propositioned him, which changed his view of her entirely. After driving along the highway, he pulled over. When Joanna became upset and tried to leave, 
Anson chased her and shot her twice with a 22 caliber revolver. Anson covered her body with gravel before also killing and burying her dog. Joanna's body was discovered in July before a Klutner and his remains were found. Anson abducted and killed Malai Larson and Sherry Morrow in 1981. Sherry had been found with bandages wrapped around her face in September 1982. Dozens of rolls of the same bandages were found in Hansen's vehicles and home. The following year, he kidnapped two more women and Hansen bought a Super Cub plane. He used the aircraft to fly women out to the Alaskan wilderness, where he would release them naked and blindfolded before hunting them, pursuing the victims with a firearm. Three of the four women that had already been discovered in shallow graves had no bullet holes in their clothes. Hansen had chased them while they were naked and shot them dead before redressing them. By the time of his arrest in October 1983, Robert Hansen had killed at least four more women, including Paula Goulding. Her body was discovered a month before Hansen's arrest. Paula had gone missing in April of that year within weeks of starting a new job as a dancer at the Great Alaskan Bush Company on Fifth Avenue. She had told friends she was going to meet a man who offered to pay her $300, but she was never seen alive again. Hansen confessed that he had taken Paula to a cabin he called the Meat Shack, saying, Maybe I shouldn't have called it a meat shack to her. Maybe that's what got her mind to thinking. She just slapped at me and started running. I caught up to her and I got her stopped. She had got hysterical and I couldn't get her calmed down. She broke away from me again and started to run, you know. I reached back. The rifle was leaned up against the building. I ran and caught her again. I had a gun in my hand and she said, you're going to kill me right now. Then it just went completely... Things just went completely bad again. Robert Hansen was taken out in a helicopter over areas he had marked out on his map to point out grave sites. State trooper Glenn Floth later told the Des Moines Register that Hansen wanted to spare his family the ordeal of a trial. Floth said, Bob knew what we had from the search of his house in October. The rifle, matching shell cases, the map with the marks on it. He wanted to take the pressure off his family. He knew after his trial for four murders we would go and find more bodies, aided by the map, aided by the spring thaws, and he didn't want these trials going on and on. At first, he stopped after admitting five killings and matching them with marks on the map. We told him we didn't believe he was cooperating fully, and after consulting with his attorneys, who were present during the questioning, he told us, I will tell you where the rest of the bodies are if you don't charge me with more murders for them. So the murder charges were kept at four, but he admitted killing 13 others for a total of 17 but denied five of the marks meant bodies. Five days after he began confessing, 
Robert Hansen was taken to the Anchorage Courthouse to plead guilty to the four murders of Eklut Narani, Joanna Messina, Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding, along with the charges from the grand jury indictment that included the kidnap and rape of Cindy Paulson. Part of Hansen's plea agreement stipulated that he would not have to face the press. He would never be charged with the other murders. He would never have to assist the investigators and serve his sentence in another state. Assistant District Attorney Frank Rothschild, who was prosecuting the case and listened to Hansen's 11-hour confession, said in his address before Judge Moody, Before you sits a monster, an extreme aberration of a human being, a man who walked among us for 17 years serving us donuts, Danish and coffee with a pleasant smile. His family was a prop. He hid behind decency. This hunter who kept trophies on the wall now has trophies scattered throughout south-central Alaska. And while he doesn't talk about or admit to it, it's obvious from looking at where things started and where women ended up, he hunted them down. He'd let them run a little bit, then he enjoyed a hunt, just like with his big game animals. Assistant District Attorney Rothschild told the court that Robert Hansen's crimes numbed the mind, and not even his wife knew what he was doing. Rothschild mentioned that Hansen had trouble making friends in high school because of a stutter and acne. The Assistant District Attorney said he doubted Hansen had ever had a single date, and described Hansen's face as a, quote, moonscape. Hansen was of average height, with fair hair. He wore thick rimmed glasses that concealed very few of the prominent acne scars that covered his face. Photographs that accompanied articles about Hansen's crimes were often outdated, because Hansen was so reluctant to face the media. Superior Court Judge Ralph Moody addressed the courtroom before delivering the sentence. Speaking about Hansen, he said, This gentleman here has been known to us for several years. We've turned him loose several times. I cannot think of a bigger indictment of society than we have here. Robert Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison plus life without the possibility of parole. 99 years concurrent sentences for three counts of murder, life without parole for the fourth count of murder, 99 years for kidnap, 30 years for rape, and a total of 35 years for the weapons and theft charges. A few months later, Hansen was transported out of Alaska and began serving his sentence in a federal prison in Pennsylvania. Outside of the courtroom on the day of the sentencing, District Attorney Crum was interviewed by the press and speaking about Hansen said, Apparently he has less of a problem killing the women than talking about it later. He is shy of publicity. He was a respectable baker, a well-known Alaskan, especially in hunting circles. But he's also a very cunning man. We still feel there may be more. 
that he hasn't told us everything. The district attorney confirmed the authorities would continue to search for further victims once the frozen ground had thawed. He said, Mr. Hansen called his work a summertime project. I guess recovering the bodies is a summertime project too. The men who had provided Hansen with a false alibi on the night he abducted Cindy Paulson were not charged with obstruction or any other crime. Assistant District Attorney Frank Rothschild felt as though the public humiliation was punishment enough. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. although the hunt for Alaska's worst-known serial killer had ended. The search for his victims remains at not. After confessing, Robert Hansen had been flown out to what was called his hunting ground, so he could point out grave sites to investigators. As the harsh winter weather began to subside on April 24, 1984, the searches for the remaining 13 victims began. Alaska state troopers went to the places marked on Hansen's map, and on the first day they discovered two sets of remains. Lieutenant Bob Jen told the Daily Sitka Sentinel that they did not have to dig more than one hole for each body. As they began to sift through the soil along the riverbank, they came across pieces of clothing, hair and human flesh. The first woman's remains were found less than 18 inches below the ground. The second victim found that day seemed to be wrapped in some sort of plastic material. The troopers believed she had been killed elsewhere before her body was moved. The investigators had dental records from the missing women and those provisionally identified as Hansen's victims, so it did not take long for the two women to be identified. They were Sue Luna and Malai Larson. Sue was a 23-year-old from Seattle who had been reported missing on May 30th, 1982. She had been working as a dancer in Anchorage for a couple of weeks, when Hansen offered her $300 to pose for a photo shoot. Just as he had with Sherry Morrow, 
Hansen met Sue at a cafe in Anchorage before the abduction, taking Sue to a remote location where he raped and killed her. Sue Luna had a four-year-old daughter who was spending a few weeks with her grandparents when her mother was killed. Bernard de Clau's book Fair Game details Sue's sister's search when the police seemed unconcerned. Roberta Bobby Moorhead also lived in Alaska, just 15 miles from Anchorage. DeClau wrote that Bobby would ride her horse along the banks of the Kinnick River, quote, looking for a grave she really didn't want to find. 28-year-old Malai Larson was a dancer from Thailand, working in a club in Anchorage when she went missing in the summer of 1981. Her body was discovered exactly where Hansen said it would be, in a parking area along the Kinnick River. The following day, troopers found another body, 15 miles northwest of Anchorage at Horseshoe Lake. The skeletal remains were discovered above ground. The skull was intact and the victim was wearing two rings. Investigators were hopeful that the woman could be identified, but for almost four decades her name remained Horseshoe Harriet. On April 26, 1984, the partial remains of Angela Fedden were found. Dental records for Angela had been compared to a recovered jawbone and proved to be a match. The bones were discovered near Figure 8 Lake. Angela Fedden was a 24-year-old woman from Washington who was believed to be working as a dancer in Anchorage when she went missing in February 1983. Also on April 26, 1984, human remains were discovered near Scenic Lake. Troopers believed that the body had been disturbed by animal predation and all that could be recovered were scraps of cloth, a pair of shoes and a single bone. Over the following three weeks, more bodies were found in areas marked on Hansen's map. They were identified as Tamara Pedersen, Lisa Futrell and Teresa Watson. Tamara Pedersen was 19 years old when she moved to Anchorage and began dancing at a club. Her parents reported her missing in August 1982 and painstakingly searched the streets of Anchorage after flying from Seattle. Tamara had been promised $300 for a photo shoot. A suitcase was discovered in the area close to where her body was found. Lisa Futrell was a 41-year-old dancer who went missing in September 1980. Hansen had abducted and killed her before burying her body in a gravel pit close to Old Connect Bridge. 22-year-old Teresa Watson had been missing since March 1983. She had been working at a massage parlour when she met a man who offered her $300 for a date. She was originally from California, but she had moved to Alaska earlier that year to find a better job. 
Hansen told investigators that he had not been able to dig through the frozen soil after he had shot Teresa, so her body was left exposed to the elements and wildlife. The search for further remains eventually came to a close. Seven marks on the map had led to seven bodies, but each cross covered ten miles, and Robert Hansen would not speak to anyone about his crimes again. A bloodhound search was carried out in June 1984, but nothing was found. The investigators were not optimistic that anything else would be discovered after so much time had passed. That same month, a joint memorial service was held at a park in downtown Anchorage, attended by hundreds of mourners. Jeannie Hollebick from the Women's Refuge Centre spoke at the service. She said, I'm a woman and so were they. I know women who dance. Sometimes we do things that don't meet with the approval of others. But what we do, we have to do to get by. There but for the grace of God go I. Catholic Archbishop Francis Hurley delivered a homily to the congregation, many of whom were friends and relatives of the known victims. The Archbishop told the mourners, There is a gulf between the world in which these women travelled and the world in which we live, but that does not stop us from thinking of them. Compassion for these young women begins with realising they were human beings, children of God, like the rest of us. Archbishop Hurley urged those who would judge the women for their lifestyle choices to forgive them and also to forgive Hansen. This was an impossible request for many, not least of all for the families of the missing women whose bodies had not yet been recovered. Jean Hawkes reported her daughter Delyn Frey missing in July 1983. She was interviewed by detectives at her home in Fairbanks a few months later, and Jean told the investigators that her daughter had identifiable jewellery and a broken arm. Delyn struggled with heroin addiction according to the investigative notes and at a site along the Kanik River during the searches in May 1984, women's clothing was found close to a hypodermic needle, a syringe, a metal spoon and a knife. The site was marked on Hansen's map, and he had pointed out the location when he was flown to the area after confessing. However, no human remains were discovered at the time. Delyn Frey's medical records were obtained by state trooper Wayne von Clayson in August of that year and compared to remains found, but there was no match. A year later, Buck Coon discovered human remains along the sandbanks of the Kanik River, close to the area where the drug paraphernalia had been found. The victim was listed as a Jane Doe. The Daily Sitka Sentinel reported the discovery on August 26, 1985. Sergeant Ed Harter told a reporter for the paper that they were still trying to confirm the person's identity. An autopsy was performed, 
and a medical examination confirmed the remains belonged to a woman in her late teens or early twenties. They believed she had been buried for at least two years, and her grave was deeper than the others. Sergeant Harter said, All of the others were in much shallower graves, but rain and high river water must have finally swept away most of the sand. It was not until 1989 when troopers exhumed the unidentified remains and compared them to the Lynn Frey's medical records that her body was finally identified. She had been wearing rings on her fingers that were flown to her mother in Hawaii. Jean Hawkes recognised them straight away. Jean had been continually fighting for action during the search for Delin's remains, and although a body had been found in 1985, it was almost five years before it was identified. An anthropological examination confirmed the identification at the beginning of 1990, and Delin's ashes were flown to Hawaii. Jean Hawkes attempted to sue the state for intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. She believed that if the police had been more diligent when pursuing Delin's medical records and her identification of the rings, along with scrutinising the location and items found nearby, then the remains would have been confirmed as Delin's much sooner. The Supreme Court ruled against Delin Frey's mother in 1995. The judgment reads in part, We assume for the sake of analysis that the potential for emotional distress to a mother resulting from the disappearance and delayed identification of the remains of her young daughter cannot be seriously disputed. But the court found that Jean Hawke's claim was misdirected at the police and the moral blame fell on Robert Hansen. The judges ruled, quote, Hawke's injury is most closely connected to Hansen's depraved conduct, not the state's handling of the investigation. It was his choice of location and method of disposing of his victims' bodies that most directly caused the delay in the identification of Frey's remains. Moreover, there is little, if any, moral blame to attach to the investigating authorities' possible failure to correlate every known characteristic of every open missing person case with every John Doe or Jane Doe deceased. Gene Hawkes continued to appeal the ruling, but the state refused to accept any liability. Andrea Altery, a 23-year-old dancer, was last seen taking a cab to the mall in Anchorage at 11pm on December 2nd, 1981. She had arranged to meet a man who would pay her $300 for a photo shoot. Andrea was wearing a black leather jacket, a red sweater, blue jeans and cowboy boots along with distinctive jewellery including a gold chain with a silver pendant in the shape of a salmon. Andrea went by the nickname Fish. Andrea Altery's remains were not recovered, but her jewellery was located in Robert Hansen's attic when it was searched on the day of his arrest. Hansen claimed that he killed her after Andrea had grabbed his gun. 
Hansen had told investigators that he had thrown a woman's body off a bridge into the Kinnick, and they believed that Andrea Altery's remains were in the river, never to be found. Hansen denied three murders he was suspected of committing. Celia Van Zanten was found at the bottom of a ravine in Seward in the early 1970s. 17-year-old Megan Emmerich, who vanished in Seward in 1973, and 23-year-old Mary Thill, who went missing from Seward in July 1975. According to The Charlie Project, an organisation that highlights cases of missing people overlooked by the media, Megan Emmerich was last seen walking from her dormitory laundry room at the Seward Skills Centre, which is now the Alaska Vocational Technical Centre, on July 7, 1973. Megan was wearing a long-sleeved white check shirt with a brown sweatshirt, blue jeans and suede ski boots. Her roommates reported her missing three days later. Megan Emmerich's body has never been found. Her family said that she loved horses, motorcycles, rock music, hunting and fishing on the Yukon with her family. Megan is survived by her brothers who long for closure. Mary Thill was last seen on July 5th, 1975 after friends had given her a lift into Seward from her home on Lower Point Road. Mary was wearing an army jacket with a grey sweater, blue Levi jeans and leather toughy hiking boots. It is believed she was carrying a small black backpack. Her husband was away from home working at the time, but he returned when he heard Mary was missing. He told investigators that it was not like Mary to leave without telling anyone. She has never been found. 24-year-old Roxanne Eastland was not found either. She was last seen on June 28, 1980, when she left to meet a man on 4th Avenue in Anchorage. She was wearing a brown leather coat with a fur collar, blue jeans or pants, and black high-heeled boots. Due to marks found on Robert Hansen's map and his known movements between Anchorage and Seward around the time that the women vanished or were killed, investigators believed that he was involved. As the searches for the victims were concluding in May 1984, Another mass murder was committed in Manly Hot Springs over 500 miles from Anchorage. Michael Silker, a 25-year-old drifter from Illinois, had moved to Alaska in late 1983 and settled in a cabin near Fairbanks. After blood was found outside of his cabin and a local man, Roger Culp, was reported missing, Alaskan state troopers suspected that Silka had murdered his neighbour in April 1984. But Silka vanished before he could be questioned. The following month he arrived in Manly Hot Springs, around 150 miles west of Fairbanks. In a single day, Silka killed 10% of the tiny village's population. 
standing on a boat ramp on the banks of the Tanana River. Silka shot and killed eight residents, including a married couple, their two-year-old son and their unborn baby. Silka had thrown the victims' bodies into the freezing river. Troopers began searching for Michael Silka along the riverbank in the unusually bright hours of the night. When officers located him and shouted from a helicopter that he surrender, Silka fired a number of rounds, instantly killing state trooper Troy Duncan. Silka was immediately shot a number of times and died on the wooded banks. Not all of the victims were recovered from the river, but freezing water significantly slows decomposition. Like Robert Hansen, Silka had fled to Alaska to escape his past, but he could not escape his predatory behaviour. Providing his thoughts, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Erwin Rothrock said, We do see a fair number of people who come here on a not-too-rational basis. They come here thinking somehow that when they get here, things will change for them. When they get here, they find that they have the same problems here as they have elsewhere. As the population in Alaska began to increase, so did the number of murders. After Silka's rampage, the number of people killed in mass murders in the five years before May 1984 rose to 49. In 1984, Alaska, with a population of just over 500,000 people, ranked the third highest in the United States for murder rates. Alaska State Police spokesperson Paul Edscorn told the Chicago Tribune, Alaska still has a romantic image for many people. It's going to be a place where people go to live in the wilderness. It's a land of opportunity. It's the last frontier. A lot of people we describe as end-of-the-roaders are people who are really trying to escape from other people and from themselves. And they definitely can't get away from themselves and are in fact more isolated with themselves here than they've ever been. As per Robert Hansen's request to serve his sentence in federal prison outside of Alaska, He had been sent to Lewisburg in late 1984, but after concerns for his safety, Hansen was moved a number of times before being transferred back to Alaska in 1988. Bob Spindle, who was in charge of prisoner records, told Alaska Dispatch News, When you kill that many women, there's a good chance you may have killed some convict's girlfriend. Two years later, an informant tipped off guards at Lemon Creek Prison in Juneau that Hansen was planning to escape. According to the Deputy Commissioner of Corrections, Frank Pewitt, a search uncovered aeronautical charts, a map of southeast Alaska, a hand-knitted winter hat, a number of magazine articles on plastic explosives and aircraft safety, and correspondence with a boat broker. Hansen had been allowed to work in the prison laundry area, and the chart was found concealed in the insulation of an air duct in the laundry room. Prison Superintendent Dan Carruthers told the Daily Sitka Sentinel 
It's like the bust of the decade as far as we're concerned. We nabbed him before he could do any damage to anyone. Following his failed escape attempt, Robert Hansen was transferred to a newly built maximum security prison in Seward. Hansen remained at Spring Creek Correctional Center until May 2014, when he was transferred to the Anchorage Correctional Complex and placed on a medical ward. Two months later, at the age of 75, Robert Hansen passed away. Glenn Floth, the Alaska State Trooper who was involved in the investigation into Hansen, said, On this day, we should only remember his many victims and all of their families, and my heart goes out to all of them. As far as Hansen is concerned, the world is better without him. A month after Robert Hansen's death, Investigators exhumed the remains of two of his unidentified victims, including the body found at Horseshoe Lake during the searches in 1984. At the request of the National Centre for Missing and Endangered Children, the remains were taken for DNA testing and the production of facial reconstruction imaging. For 37 years, one of the women was known as Horseshoe Harriet. Very recently, using genetic genealogy, the Alaska State Troopers were able to discover the identity of one of serial killer Robert Hansen's victims. Uh, she was nicknamed uh, Horseshoe Harriet. Her body was found in April of 84 out by Horseshoe Lake, which is near the mouth of the Susitna River. Hansen killed her in 1983. Once he was caught as part of his plea bargain, he identified the location of her body and a few others. The medical examiner's office made dental records, and then she was buried at the Anchorage Cemetery as a Jane Doe. With the advent of DNA analysis, she was exhumed in 2014 to collect a DNA sample from her remains. Her profile was uploaded into the FBI's National Missing Persons Database in 2015, but no matches were found. In 2020, a different type of profile was created from the 2014 samples and her profile was uploaded into a public genetic genealogy database in August 2021. A family tree was developed and identified a possible match to Horseshoe Harriet. Matches indicated that the woman was a 19-year-old from Colorado, and DNA comparisons with close relatives confirmed that Horseshoe Harriet was in fact Robin Pelkey. There were no records of Robin ever being reported missing, but it was believed that she had been living in Anchorage in the early 1980s. She had been stabbed in the back four times and then shot four times. The other unidentified victim, a Klutnerani, was found in a gravel pit in July 1980. The mystery woman was believed to have been dead for at least a year but a preliminary investigation of her remains showed that she was likely aged between 16 to 25, white with possible Native American ancestry, with light brown hair, and stood between 4 foot 11 inches to 5 foot 3 inches tall. Her remains were clothed in a brown leather jacket, a knitted sweater, jeans and red-coloured knee-high boots with a heel. She also wore distinctive jewellery, a chunky copper bracelet adorned with three turquoise stones with a matching beaded necklace that had a heart charm attached 
and gold hoop earrings with a matching gold ring. Her remains were exhumed in 2021. She has not yet been identified. The Alaska State Troopers Bureau of Investigation Cold Case Investigation Unit is currently working on identifying the first of Hansen's victims. Uh, today we exhumed uh, the remains of a, a young woman who was killed back in 1979. Uh, she's colloquially known as Akutna Annie. Her body was found uh, in 1980 uh, along a power line trail by Akutna uh, Lake Road to the east of Anchorage. Uh, she is one of the victims of serial killer Robert Hansen. Uh, he confessed to her murder, um, claimed that she was his first murder victim, and it occurred sometime in the fall of 1979. In 2003, the remains were exhumed to collect a DNA sample from, from her bones. Uh, they were able to de generate a DNA profile to put in the National Missing Persons Database but unfortunately, um, there's been no hits on the, from that database. So now we're trying a different method uh, that involves uh, a different type of DNA profile. The samples we had had degraded over time, so we needed to collect uh, new samples uh, to try this process again. Hopefully we'll be able to get a good sample, upload it ultimately into GEDmatch and or FTDNA, and be able to build her family tree and find out who she is and get some closure for her family. After Robert Hansen was sentenced, Assistant District Attorney Frank Rothschild said that he believed the other marks on the map that Hansen had denied were graves, actually represented, quote, bodies of women who were probably not dancers or prostitutes, whose killings in his own mind he cannot justify. Although Robert Hansen's victims were portrayed as vulnerable and easy prey, they were women who were working hard to better themselves. Hansen confessed that numerous times many of the women had fought back and almost escaped. There is no denying that Hansen was a proficient hunter when it came to shooting animals, but he blindfolded his victims and stripped them naked while he chased them. It was not a fair hunt. They were outmatched by a coward with a gun. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration. Narration Editing and Production Direction by Benjamin Fitton For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.